Everybody doing okay? You guys good? Good. Six people who are really good over here. It's good. Good to see you guys. You UT fans got to be happy, right? You want a game? So I'm from St. Louis. If you're new here, I'm from St. Louis. We don't give a rip about football if you're from St. Louis. We like baseball. We like hockey. Uh, there's no good football teams. Whenever we would get an NFL team, they'd stay for a little bit and we'd ship them off because no one went to the games. All of our colleges suck up there. So like, no, no one cared about football at all. So when you, when you come to the South and, um, you know, we have the great coliseums of the SEC, uh, it's, um, it's just a different, different culture, man. People go wild down here about, about UT, don't they? You guys good? Everyone good? There's no UT fans at the tent. It's cool. It's all right. All right. Well, luckily we have the Bible to talk about this morning. So we've been working through um, the book of Samuel. If you've never been here before, this is what we do. We go through whole books of the Bible. Sometimes we get a little adventurous and we go into the Old Testament. And um, we're going to be hanging out there for quite a while, actually. And uh, I hope you've, if you've been here, I hope you've enjoyed Samuel so far. We've, <laughs> we've only done three chapters. We have a long way to go, but I hope you've enjoyed it so far. And, and where we are at, without exaggeration, if you've never read the book of 1 Samuel, I, I, I think the Old Testament is fascinating. Chapters four and five, we're gonna do two chapters today because they're very, very short. Chapters four and five of 1 Samuel, to me, are some of the most intriguing, fascinating, interesting chapters in the entire Old Testament. I am very excited to teach these two chapters. I think they're, they're absolutely mind-boggling what we're gonna talk about today. Now, if you haven't been here, let me catch you up a little bit. So the first three chapters of the book of 1 Samuel, which is the ninth book of the, New, uh, of the Old Testament, the first three chapters are predominantly about Samuel's mother, Samuel's birth, um, a little bit about a guy named Eli, who was a priest that Samuel was given over to when Samuel was just three years old. We learned that Eli was not a bad man, but he allowed evil things to happen in his family. He had two sons, uh, Hophni and Phinehas, that we'll talk about a little bit today, who were exceptionally evil men. They were religious men, but they were not good men. What that means is they knew all the religious things to do, but they were having sex with women in the temple. They were misusing the giving that was given to the, to, to the church. They were evil, corrupt people. And so there was a prophecy given from an unnamed prophet to, to, to Eli, basically saying that your family's gonna go down. God is gonna, gonna bring your family down and humble your family and people are going to die violently and, and it's gonna be rough for your family and your name's going to be ruined. And we're gonna see the fruition of that actually in chapters four and five. At the end of chapter three though, something we talked about two weeks ago is we see the, the call of Samuel, that Samuel is officially called, and in, this, in chapter three, literally called by God to be a prophet. And so what we talked about two weeks ago is we have to ask ourselves, are we positioning ourselves to hear God? Now, if you're not a Christian in here, I would challenge you and say, are you, are you seeking, are you listening, are you cutting out distractions to where if God is real, which of course I believe he is, that, that you're able to, to experience God. If you're in here and you're already a Christian, I would challenge you and say, are we positioning, positioning ourselves as believers to hear God speak to us in our daily lives? Are we doing that? That's what we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Today, we are gonna talk about something that, again, why I think this is so fascinating, because though it was written 3,000 years ago, it is so relevant to what's going on in our world today. Today, we're gonna talk about the idea of the true God 
versus manufactured or man-made gods. We're going to talk about these two things, okay? And um, we're actually going to talk about a pagan god, Dagon, today, a little bit today. Uh, but, but the real god of chapters four and five is self. And that's the god of America right now, the individual self. And so we're going to talk a little bit about God versus God. So you should have got a note handout when you walked in. Everything's in there. Everything will be on the screen. Um, if you have the app, just click on sermon notes. Everything's right there. If you have good old-fashioned physical copy of the Bible, we're in the ninth book of the Bible, and we're in the fourth and fifth chapter. We'll get through it pretty quick. It's pretty short. Again, I think it's very, very fascinating. I hope I'm not overselling it to you. Um, if I am, I, I, it's pretty offensive because you're talking about the Bible, right? So uh, anyways, but we're going to pray. We'll jump into this. We'll see what the Lord teaches us, okay? We're going to be really open and honest, and, and we're going to talk like adults this morning too, if that's okay, right? You know, you know what I'm learning the older I get? We have less and less time to beat around the bush. We just need to, we just need to get to the root of things, and we need to talk about about the real root problems of why we are experiencing some things right now in our society and, uh, and personally, why we're, we're experiencing some things that maybe we shouldn't be. And um, so we're just gonna talk real today. Let me pray for all of us. God, we love you. <sighs> Lord, we thank you so much. I thank you so much for, for this 10 o'clock service, Lord, for everyone in this room. God, for all the children on the other side and all the middle schoolers, God. Lord, I just pray that you keep your hand on your church today. Keep your hand on us, God. We don't just pray for us, Father. We pray for, for every church in our city. Pray for all of our campuses, other campuses, and all the churches in those cities, Lord. And we just pray, Father, that as we get into your word, we pray, Lord, that we honor you by our study. And we also pray, Lord, that we are blessed and drawn closer to you by your study and by your word, Lord. We love you. We thank you. Pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Read a little bit, go back, and we'll break it down. I'm going to start at the very end of chapter three, okay? Because it kind of it rolls right in to chapter four. So let me start in the, the last verse of chapter three. The Lord continued to appear in Shiloh because there he revealed himself to Samuel by his word. And Samuel's words came to all Israel. Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle and camped at Ebenezer, while the Philistines camped at Aphek. The Philistines lined up in battle formation against Israel, and as the battle intensified, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who struck down about 4,000 men on the battlefield. When the troops returned to the camp, the elders of Israel asked, why did the Lord defeat us before the Philistines? Let's bring the Ark of the Covenant from Shiloh. I'll explain what that is here in a second, but look at this next sentence then it will go with us and save us from our enemies. I want you to remember that. Not God will go save us from our enemies. This religious symbol will save us from our enemies. Okay, remember that. So the people sent men to Shiloh to bring back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Armies who is enthroned between the cherubim. Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. When the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord entered the camp, all the Israelites raised such a loud shout that the ground shook. The Philistines heard the sound of the war cry and asked, what's this loud shout in the Hebrews' camp? Then the Philistines discovered the Ark of the Lord had entered into the camp and they panicked. 
A God has entered into their camp, they said. Woe to us. Nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who will rescue us from these magnificent gods? These are the gods that slaughtered the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Show some courage and be men, Philistines. Otherwise, you'll serve the Hebrews as they served you. Now be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated. Each man fled to his own tent. The slaughter was severe. 30,000 of the Israelite foot soldiers fell. The ark was captured and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died, more than likely in battle, okay? We're gonna jump right in it. So God had made Samuel an official prophet. The role of the prophet was to hear the word of God and then to deliver the, God, uh, deliver the words, uh, words of God to the nation, to the people, okay? Sometimes to individual people. But we learn that God's word through Samuel was being ignored. How do we know that? It says that he gave the word from God to the people, but the people decided to engage in a battle with the Philistines that they were not, they were not supposed to be involved in. They had not talked and consulted with God first before going into this battle. So here's the thing, Samuel is not mentioned for several more chapters in the book of Samuel after this point. And, and what that tells us is the nation, <laughs> listen, imagine this, imagine a nation that is extremely religious but is not listening to the voice of God. That's what the Israelites were doing. They were very religious people but they were not listening to the prophet. They were not listening to the man of God. They were not listening to the voice of God. And this is a recipe for disaster. Whenever we go into a battle, you or I, battle in quotations, whenever we go into a battle without consulting God first, without leaning on God's provision, without asking what God's will is, we are destined to fail. Now, Battles in our lives can be good and bad. We battle for our marriage. We battle for our jobs. We battle for you know financial uh, security for our family, all these things. And these are fine battles to get involved in. But the, the, the point is this. What we tend to do as Christians sometimes, you and I, is we make plans, we make our plans, and then we ask God to kind of sign off on our plans. And then we wonder why those plans fall apart. And what we should do is when it comes to things like where we work or where we live or who we marry or where we decide to live geographically or whatever the case may be, we should be bringing those important, significant decisions to God and saying, God, what is your will for me? It just makes all the sense in the world before we just pick someone to marry or pick some place to move to or pick a job to start or stop or whatever the case may be. It would behoove us, that's a good word, to go to God because God knows everything. And so it just makes sense to consult him because he knows all before we step out into our battles. And so what happened was, just like what happens with a lot of us today, is we go into our own battles, we lose, and then we go, God, why'd you let me down? Why did, why did you defeat me today, God? And that's what the Jewish people did. First, they lost 4,000 people. Then they eventually lose another 30,000 people. Why? Not only did they not go into a battle without consulting God first, here's the other thing. They had unrepentant sin in their hearts. You know why a lot of us experience a lot of failures in life? 
because we have unaddressed evil that is in our hearts. And the Bible says that the prayers of righteous people are effective, which teaches us that the prayers of unrighteous people are ineffective. And so they're looking at this and they're seeing the carnage of their bad decisions. And they say, why did this happen, God? But if you go back and read it, it looks like they have no desire to really know the answers to that question. And it, it reminds me of the situation that, 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 that we are in as Americans right now, all over the place. Everyone is ticked off right now, right? Everyone's angry and everyone's going, man, why is there so many people who can't afford things? Why are there so many homeless in the streets? Why is there so much dysfunction and depression and division and divorce and on and on it goes? And we go, why, 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 why? But all of us are so selfish or so distracted that we never dig in to find out the root of the problem. You guys are with me this morning, correct? We're all saying, man, it sucks around here, but no one's going, why does it suck? It's not someone in Washington. It's not it's something that's just happened in the last couple of years. There's something that's been brewing for a long time. And we're afraid and we're scared or we're just too lazy to try to get at the root of the weed, the root of the problem that's going on. So we're asking why, but we don't really care to know the answer because the answer might take some work. Also notice there was no repentance. Nowhere in these first four, four verses do you see any sign of personal responsibility. This was my fault, right? Nowhere do you see any sign of repentance for the sin that they were living in. Their failure was God's fault, not their selfishness, not their rebellion, not their poor choices. It's God's fault, blame shifting. We do that very, very well in the Western world. But what this goes back to is it goes back to a simple principle. And I've been barking this for like a month now. The simple principle is, is, is this. We cannot expect the things of God or the presence of God when we are continually asking God to get out of our lives. I cannot expect God to be near me when I keep asking him to get away. Well, Corey, I've never done that. When we consciously live in sin, that's what we're doing. We are asking him to not be a part of our life. We're doing it our way. And then we get mad when God's not around, right? And God's like, you've asked me not to be around. Very simple principle. So here's what they do. Guys, it gets more interesting and more relevant as we go. So what they did is they lost 4,000 men in battle. And they're like, okay, we have to go get a religious symbol. We have to go get our ark. That's how we'll win the battle. Religion will win the battle for us. So they go grab the ark. Now, a lot of us were first exposed to the ark of the covenant or the ark of God through, through Indiana Jones. Um, and if you haven't been, I'm so sorry, your parents have failed you. But it's, it's more than just a, a, a movie. Um, when you go into the Old Testament, the ark of God is, is maybe one of the most iconic things in the Old Testament. And, and what it was is God made a promise to Moses that anyone who upheld the 10 commandments, these, these tablets with the 10 commandments written on it, that anyone who upholds those, God would protect and he would honor, okay? As a reminder to the people, God told Moses to build this gold box. It had two pieces of acacia wood coming out so they could carry it. This gold box inside of it were the 10 commandments, the tablets, and then on top was what's called the mercy seat with two angels whose wings come together. And this box was made to house the Ten Commandments and to, to remind the people of the promises of God. Not only that, the top of it, called the mercy seat, 
The Bible says that there would be a, a visible sign of God's presence called the Shekinah glory, this visible sign of his presence. And when they made sacrifices annually, they would pour the blood of the sacrifice on this mercy seat. And all of this foreshadows Jesus. It kind of a, is, is a precursor to Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. So here's what they did, guys. If you go back and notice, I, I pointed out to you, I stopped when I was reading it. They said, let's go get it and it will save us. This religious thing will save us. So though the presence of God was associated with the ark, the ark was not God, okay? Just like that gold cross on, on your necklace if you're wearing one, that, that, that reminds us of Jesus, but that, that's not Jesus. There's no power in that gold cross. That's just a piece of gold, right? Just like, um, and, and, and again, I'm gonna be rude here in a second, so bear with me. There's a lot of Protestants who, who will take shots at Catholics or Lutherans because they use things like rosaries. And I'm not condoning everything that Catholics do or, or that Lutherans do. My mother was raised Lutheran and my grandmother had an old rosary that hangs in my office right now and it's rubbed almost to nothing because my grandmother would pray the rosary all the time. Now, my grandmother didn't think that there was anything magical about that, but it reminded her of God and it helped her pray. And, and, and I don't really personally have any problem with that. And, and what happens though is a lot of people sometimes take shots at people like that. Man, look at that. They think there's something magical in that thing. And the same people who typically take those, those shots have no relationship with Jesus, but they've become so superstitious to believe that, you know, they can wear that gold cross on their neck and have sex outside of marriage. But as long as they have this iconography and these religious things around that they're okay. See, we've created this thing in Southern Christianity to where we can go to church for an hour and a half a week, maybe, as long as it's not vision service, right? We'll go then and, and, and we'll go to church once a week if we're good. We'll put a sticker on the car. We'll have some, you know, distressed wood that says grace on it in the house and we can live like hell the rest of the time, but we think those things somehow make us holy. I told you we we're gonna be honest in here this morning. So this is not a new thing. So the Jews thought that as long as we're religious, we don't have to have a relationship with God. Let's just go get some religious things. And that will win our battles for us. But it doesn't happen. They go into the battle thinking that the box was God. They were literally trying to put God in a box. They even say that. They say, well, God hangs out between the two angels on top of the box. So let's, let's take him and let's go. But religion without relationship does nothing. It does nothing. We can wear crosses all over ourselves and get all the bumper stickers and tattoos and shirts we want. If we don't know Christ, one day we will stand in front of him and he will say that he does not know us. That's the truth. And we get so arrogant behind our religious symbols, don't we? Look how big our building is. Look at how big these crosses are. Look at how big these things are. Look at how nice we dress on the weekend. Obviously not us, right? But you look nice. I don't look nice. But we get arrogant behind these religious things. And it's in that hubris that we fall. It's in that failure to address sin that we fall and the religious symbol gets taken as well. The ark symbolized the blessing and favor of God. But when we, when we think we can manipulate God, when we think we can control God, God exits. 
God, God leaves because God cannot be controlled by the creation and the blessings will leave with him. So what was the result? What was the result? When we take matters into our own hands, instead of consulting God, instead of living in obedience to God, if we have unaddressed sin, instead of us trusting him, not only are we destined to fail, we're destined to hurt those around us as well. So because of Hophni and Phinehas' evil, because of Eli's neglect of calling the evil out, 34,000 men died that day, including these two brothers. And we're gonna see here in a second, a couple of other people. And what do we learn from that? What we learn is the Bible says, do, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. You can't pull a fast one over on God. We can't wear all the, all the religious stuff and walk around saying, be blessed, be blessed, be blessed, and harbor hatred and all these bad things and lust and all these things. And God, we're not gonna be able to get up there and trick God. God's gonna see it. And what the Bible says is whatever we, we sow, we eventually reap. And if we sow into lust and destruction and evil and violence and selfishness, that's why you're seeing what you're seeing right now in the United States. You are starting to see the results of things that we have been planting for decades. Decade. Let me give you an example. Can I give you an example real quick? We're talking like adults this morning, okay? Right now you have all kinds of Christians. And listen, I'm not telling you it's wrong to be upset about these things, but all these Christians are going, look how evil these people are. There are boys that think they're girls and girls that think they're boys. Look at how evil that, can I tell you what that's the result of? That's the result of your grandfather looking at playboys upstairs and everyone knew that he was sexually moral, but no one would ever call him out. Hey, listen, I'm not trying to hurt your feelings this morning. Sin is sin. And it was just as sinful to, to cheat on your wife 60 years ago and to look at whatever kind of porn they had 60 years ago. But the church was so consumed with the show and the lights and the bull crap that we neglected the sin that was going on in our own home for so long that now we don't even know what a boy and a girl is. And you ask, well, how did we get here? This is how we got there. Because we turned a blind eye to the evil that was brewing for decades and decades. You think the United States started falling apart last year? But we turned a blind eye. And now we go, how did we get here? And it's time for us to own it. What we plant, we will eventually reap. And we are starting to see the ramifications of our neglect spiritually for decades and decades in the Western world. Okay? All right, let's keep on going. That same day, a Benjaminite man ran from the battle and came to Shiloh. His clothes were torn and there was dirt on his head. When he arrived, there was Eli sitting on the chair beside the road waiting because he was anxious about the ark of God. When the man entered the city to give a report, the entire city cried out. Eli heard the outcry and asked, why this commotion? The man quickly came and reported to Eli. At that time, Eli was 98 years old and his eyes didn't move because he couldn't see. The man said to Eli, I'm the one who came from the battle. I fled from there today. What happened, my son? Eli asked. The messenger answered, Israel has fled from the Philistines and also there was a great slaughter among the people. Your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are both dead and the ark of God has been captured. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward off the chair by the city gate 
And since he was old and heavy, his neck broke and he died. Eli had judged Israel 40 years. Eli's daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and about to give birth. When she heard the news about the capture of God's ark and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband, she collapsed and gave birth because her labor pains came on her. As she was, uh, as she was dying, the, woman, the women taking care of her said, don't be afraid, you've given birth to a son. But she did not respond or pay attention. She named the boy Ichabod, saying the glory has departed Israel, referring to the capture of the ark of God, to the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband. And the glory has departed from Israel, she said, because the ark has been captured. So we're led to believe that Eli knew that something was about to happen. Eli was sitting by the, the gate of the city and it says that he was anxious. He was anxious about the ark. He knew that, that something bad was about to shake down. He had the prophecies given to him. Um, I, believe, I believe that Eli probably heard from the Lord and, and he just knew something bad was going to happen. And so someone runs back in and, and tells him the news, tells a lot of people the news and goes up to Eli and tells him the news. And he hears about his sons dying. He hears about 34,000 soldiers dying. But the thing that literally pushed him over the edge to his death was he heard that the ark had been taken. And he falls back, breaks his neck, dies instantly. This is not the last of the tragedies in this chapter. So then they go to Eli's daughter-in-law, Phineas's uh, wife, who's pregnant, and she hears the exact same news. And it caused her to fall back. She goes into early labor and the labor eventually kills her. But before she died, she named her son Ichabod, which means the glory is leaving or, or, or where is the glory? Imagine being in middle school and you have the most depressing name of all time, right? <laughs> Ichabod was probably a pretty emo kid walking around. And so, so here was the problem. We got to laugh a little bit this morning. So here was the problem. Like many of us, Eli and Phineas's wife still put, man, I hope, I hope I say this correctly, and I hope you hear where I'm going with this. They put more stock in religious symbolism than they did in God. Not only that, they were more concerned that their religious symbol had crumbled than they were the, the, the fact that 34,000 people just got slaughtered. Listen to me. Man, I love you guys. And I'm not a communist. I'm not a socialist. Hear me out here for a second. Sometimes in the United States, Christians are more concerned about laws and documents and slogans like one nation under God. We are more concerned about fighting for those things while people all around us are spiritually dying. Do you hear me? Sometimes Christians are more concerned with winning an argument than they are about winning someone's heart to Christ. And that's what was going on here. We're more, I think more Christians are more concerned about the constitution than they are about the Holy Bible sometimes, than they are about the principles of the Bible. And so we say things like, oh, we're gonna fight to be one nation under God. Listen, if you want this, if you want us to be a people under God, do you know, do you know the, only, the only thing that will turn that tide? I don't know if anything will turn that tide now. But, but, but if we wanna get back to a state to where we are a people under the true God, that means that you and I have to get to know individuals. 
An individual's hearts need to turn towards the true God in order for us to be a people under God, blessed by God. But we keep fighting for slogans when we should be fighting for people. We should be fighting for the things of God. And we put so much stock in, in what I would call religion that we forget relationship. And so here's the thing, and I hope again you hear me. The loss on the battlefield, the death of the priest, the death of the priest's sons, the, the, the death of the priest's daughter-in-law, the capture of the ark. Eli's daughter-in-law says, this is all a sign that God is leaving us. And actually, this was the ramifications of the fact that God had already left. What do I mean by that? There again, there's so many people, right? Man, if we, don't, if we don't get our act together, God's gonna leave the United States. The blessings of God will leave you. Guys, they're gone. This is why you are feeling the things that you are feeling right now. The reason why it's aggressive and unsafe and tense and, and misogynistic and racist and, and condescending, the reason why there's so much crime and depression and violence and confusion and sexual immorality is not because God's like, guys, I'm gonna leave. It's because we've already asked him to leave. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? We are seeing the fruit of something that we planted a long time ago. And we have been asking him to exit for decades. And now we're like, oh, what do we do? But we have been asking this. So listen, God is gracious. He's patient. But if we live for self, we have to understand the consequence of living for self is an absence of the presence of God. We're gonna to get to that in the next chapter because God and the God of self cannot occupy the same space. One has to go. And we've, we as a people have asked, asked the true God to go a long time ago. And that leads to this last part. We're gonna do this whole chapter, okay? You guys are probably so ready to get out of here. Got one, one more part to go, okay? After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod and they brought it into the temple of Dagon and placed it next to his statue. Some people say Dagon, I say Dagon. Dagon just makes me think I'm like somewhere in like, I don't know, like, I don't know, I shouldn't say that. Anyways, <laughs> when the people of Ashdod got up early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen with his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and returned him to his place. But when they got up early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen with his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. This time, Dagon's head and both of his hands were broken off and lying on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso remained. This is why today the priests of Dagon and everywhere who enters the temple of Dagon and Ashdod do not step on the threshold. The Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod. He terrified the people of Ashdod and its territory and afflicted them with tumors. When the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, the ark of Israel's God must not stay here with us because his hand is strongly against us and our God Dagon. Notice they will not turn from their God. So they called all the Philistine rulers together and asked, what should we do with the ark of Israel's God? The ark of Israel's God should be moved to Gath, they replied. So they moved the ark of Israel's God. After they moved it, the Lord's hand was against the city of Gath. 
causing great panic. He afflicted the people of the city from the youngest to the oldest with an outbreak of tumors. The people of Gath then sent the ark of God to Ekron. But when it got there, the Ekronites or Ekronites cried out, they've moved the ark of Israel's God to kill us and our people. The Ekronites called all the Philistine rulers together and they said, send the ark of, Israel, of Israel's God away. Let it return to its place so it won't kill us and our people. For the fear of death pervaded the city. God's hand was oppressing them. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumors and the outcry of the city went up to the heavens. Now, this is one of my favorite chapters in the Old Testament, and I'll tell you why. I just think there's a ton of amazing lessons in this. So most people um, have, if you've been in church for any length of time, you've probably heard of the Philistines, Philistines, however you wanna say that, mostly because of the story of David and Goliath, right? The Jews send down David, the Philistines send down Goliath, they fight, we all know how that ends. So these people were enemies of the Jews, and they were southeast of Israel, okay? Right by Israel. Now, they were pagan people. They believed in pagan gods. Dagon, that we're gonna talk about, was half fish, half human. It's one of their gods. They were known to be extremely brilliant people, very intelligent people, very creative people. They were also known to be big partiers. They, they almost stayed in a, in a constant state of intoxication. And they were very aggressive people. Eventually, the Greeks would come along, conquer this area, and they would call these people Palestinians. It's interesting that there is still tension between the Jews and Palestinians today. So after defeating the Jewish people, they took the ark, they put it in a little town called Ashdod, and they put it in the temple of Dagon next to the statue of Dagon. So the temple of Dagon would have been roughly about the size of this room and there would have been a massive statue, about 30 foot tall, they think, of this, this fish god, Dagon, in this room, okay? So they put the statue, uh, uh, they put the ark right in front of the statue, and this was very strategic, this was very intentional. The reason why they placed the ark in the position that they did in front of Dagon is the ark was small, relatively speaking. Dagon was huge, they were in Dagon's house, his temple, right? And so it was symbolic of their God looking down on our God. It was defeating, it was condescending. It was our God submitting to, to their God, to Dagon. Oddly enough though, the day after they put the ark in there with their God, right? Two gods in the same temple. They come back the next day and they notice that Dagon has fallen over right in front of the ark. Now listen, if one's just gonna pick a God, don't pick the one you have to help back up on his podium. <laughs> That's what they said, they, they gotta get him back on his podium, right? And so they, they put him back on his podium and they're like, okay, all right, you, you good, Dagon, everything's good, they leave. The next day they came in and it was even worse. Dagon had not only fallen over in front of the ark, but it said his head and his hands had essentially been severed, they had been broken off. Now, there's a reason why it mentions that. That would have been indicative of a military-style execution. That's what you would have done to the leader of your enemies if you defeat them in battle. You would have beheaded them and more than likely cut their hands off to show that they cannot think and they cannot act against you. This is why David cut off the head of Goliath, right? That's gonna happen later on. 
It was a military-style execution to show dominance. What is the point and why do I personally love this story so much? The point is extremely important. It is simple but important. It tells us that the true God, listen, will not occupy the same space with another God. I hope you hear that. Now, just to be clear, there are no other gods. I'll be offensive this morning. There is no such thing as Krishna or Brahma or Vishnu. There, 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 there are no such thing as other gods. There, here's the thing. When we put something in a place that is more important than the true God, what we do is we create a lowercase g God. We create gods in our life. Another lesson, though, we learned from Dagon, this man-made created God that's supposed to give them fertility and blessings. Another thing that we learned is anything that is man-made is going to come to an end. It's going to collapse eventually. It's going to break eventually. It's going to have a lifespan. And so there are so many important lessons. Now let's take it into the New Testament and let's take it into our personal lives. So the Ark of the Covenant of God when it was not being brought into war or moved from town to town, the Ark of the Covenant of God would sit in the temple or the tabernacle in a space called the Holy of Holies. It was a, it was a place where only certain people could go at certain times of the year. The presence of God was in there. You had to, you had to go in there with no sin. You had to go through all these different uh, 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 sacrifice um, rituals and everything to get into this part where the Spirit of God was. In the New Testament... When Christ is crucified and dies, it mentions that when Christ dies, the veil or the curtain that separated the ark and the presence of God from the common man and woman, that that veil ripped from top to bottom. The reason why that is important is what that symbolized is now the presence of God is not going to stay in one spot. It's not going to be confined. Not that God can ever be confined, but you know what I'm saying. It will not be confined to a temple but now, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, we are now the temple of, of the presence of God, the spirit of God. So here's the two things that are very important today. If we understand that God will not occupy the same space as another God, and if we understand that we are the temple of God now, that tells us that within ourselves, there cannot be competing loves. There cannot be competing gods. So we have to make sure that God is always at the top of our priority list. That doesn't mean that we can't have passions or dreams or pursuits or aspirations. We can. But Jesus said, seek first the kingdom and then everything else works out after that. Jesus also said that no one can serve two masters. We cannot, and the, and the, and the master of, of the, the, the Western world is the individual, the self. We are gods, right? Which is the basis of Satanism. I've told you that before. I won't get into that. But anyways, the God of the United States, we are one nation under God, but it's the God of the individual. And what the Bible says is that no one can serve themselves and Jesus simultaneously. No one can serve themselves and God simultaneously. He will not share that space. He will not share that space. So they put the ark in Ashdod. Everyone in Ashdod starts freaking out and getting tumors. They're like, we don't want this. So they ship it off to Gath. Gath starts freaking out and getting tumors. We don't want this. Goes to another area and they're like, what are you guys trying to kill us? 
give this back to the Jews, get, get this out of here, because the hand of God is oppressing us. Now listen, this is just Corey's opinion. It says in the New Testament that it is not God's will that any people go to hell, not even the enemies of the people of God. That's what I believe. When God was oppressing the Philistines, I don't believe it was because he necessarily hated the Philistines or that he, that, that, that he wanted to oppress them. I think that God was more than likely trying to do whatever he had to do to get the attention of these pagan people that worshiped false gods and to get them to recognize the true God. That's what I believe. And if that is the case, listen, how often in our lives is maybe God putting pressure on us to get us to drop our gods and look at him? How many times in our life do we feel something? Maybe we go through a situation. Maybe it's not our fault. Maybe it's not anyone else's fault. Maybe God has brought some turbulence into our life to bring our eyes back to him. He doesn't do that because he hates us. He does that because he loves us, because he knows that our gods, our sin, will inevitably destroy us. And he wants us to turn, okay? We're almost there, guys. The first thing is this, we're gonna talk real, okay? And we're, we're gonna talk practical application. A lot of us in this room experience failure in our life because when it comes to a big decision in our life, instead of taking it to God, we just make all the plans and then we ask God to, to, to do what we want. And that's why we see so much failure in our life. So whenever we go into battles, it would be very wise of us to consult God first. Should I move here? Should I take this job? Should I marry this boy? Should I do this? And consult with God before we make these major decisions. And we'll see more success in our life. Another reason why a lot of us experience failures or we, 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 we do not experience the, the, the things of God is because we have unaddressed sin in our hearts. Again, God you know, may want you to have that promotion or, or meet that girl or whatever the case may be, but before the promotion and the girl, God wants you to address that sin and he wants to forgive that sin in our heart because that sin is what will eternally separate us from him. So first things first, God wants to make sure that we're where we need to be before we start doing other things. Again, the prayers of a righteous person are effective, which leads us to believe the prayers of people who are not righteous are ineffective. And that's why we're not seeing the things of God the way we would like, as we have unrepentant sin. So are we consulting God? Are we repenting of sin? Another reason that we may not experience the things of God or at least the deeper things of God is because there's maybe some of us in this room who trust more in religion than we trust in a relationship with Jesus. Again, we've created this narrative that if we just put on some nice clothes and go to church once a week, that we're Christians. Imagine if you dressed up once a week for your wife and saw her for an hour and a half and did whatever the heck you wanted to do all the other hours of the week. That's not a marriage, right? but that's what we do with God. And we think though that religious repetition will save us and it won't. We have to have a personal relationship with Jesus. I think we also need to be honest and ask ourselves, I think a lot of Christians have become superstitious. Guys, I don't mean to hurt your feelings, but I even hear people talk about like haunted houses. 
Man, this house is haunted. Listen, I don't believe in ghosts. I believe in evil spirits. And evil spirits don't care anything about the brick and mortar of your home. They don't want to destroy the brick and mortar. Buildings aren't possessed. People are possessed. But we become superstitious because we watch too many movies. And we need, to, we, need to, we need to make sure that we're biblical, not superstitious. Okay? But we can sometimes get very, very, well, as long as I have this cross, that, that, that does nothing. Lean on the real cross, right? Lean on the one who died on the real cross. That will do something for you. Okay? Now, maybe even a deeper issue than, than not consulting with God or unrepentant sin or even being religious versus relational, maybe an even deeper problem is a matter of our priorities. That quite frankly, God is not as important to us as we say he is. And some people get offended by that. How dare you tell, tell me that God is not important to me? Well, listen, Jesus said that where your treasure is, your heart will be as well. So if none of your time, money, energy, talents, abilities, or, or thoughts go towards Jesus and they all go to materialistic things or sports or you know relationships or whatever, I can make a pretty good argument from the Bible that, that those are your gods, that your priorities are not Jesus. If you only talk to Jesus for a couple of minutes once a week while you're taking communion, if you have time to take communion, I know a lot of you have to run off and talk on the way out, um, but, but, but if your only time talking with God the whole week is for five minutes at the end of, of, of service taking communion really quick, guys, that, 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 that's not a priority to you. It's not a priority. If you can tell me every single starting lineup of you know, whatever football teams for the last decade, but you can't tell me who the 12 disciples were, well, it's just too much to remember. Really? I'm just telling you guys this, and I'm not trying to be judgmental, and I'm not trying to be a jerk this morning. But listen, whatever, whatever we invest in, we will eventually have to deal with. Whatever we, we, we sow, we're eventually going to have to reap. And even if those things are not bad things, if we're just constantly sowing into temporary things, we will get a temporary reward. If, 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 if our energy and time and, and everything is made into getting that perfect picture for Instagram, you'll get a couple of thumbs, you'll get a couple of hearts. There's this temporary euphoric feeling, oh, you know, I'm pretty and look, people like me. And then it goes away and you have to do it again because it's temporary. But, but if that's what we sow into, that, that's what we will reap, temporary benefits. And because we live in a culture that is constantly just investing in ourselves, ourselves, right? Us, it's all about us. We're constantly involved in things that make us feel good. We're only getting temporary results of that. And we're missing out on eternal things like joy and peace and patience and gentleness and self-control. And on and on the fruit of the Spirit goes. And here's the thing though, when we start though to sow into the things of God and to God, when we start to pray, when we start to read the word, when we start to find good community, when we start to think on the things of God, we start to plant seeds in that and what ends up coming out. There's no, it's no accident that it's called the fruit of the Spirit. Fruit has to grow. It has to be planted and mature and grow. And we experience that fruit even before eternity. What that means is if we invest into the eternal things of God, we feel the eternal things of God now. 
those things start to grow up and mature. And we have peace and we have self-control and we have love and we have gentleness and patience. We have these things. But, but do not be deceived, Paul writes. For what we sow, we will also reap. We have to remember that. We also have to remember that God will not occupy the same space as any other God in our life. We are the temples of the Holy Spirit and God will not occupy that space with something else that we value more than him. In practical terms, what that means is there is no part-time Christianity. There is no riding the fence. We, we cannot have hands in both worlds. We cannot serve ourselves and serve God simultaneously. Jesus said, you either gather with me or you scatter without me. You are either in or you are out. You are either for me or you are against me. There, there, there is no middle ground. It's like saying, well, I'm kind of married. You're either married or you're not, right? You're either dedicated to this person or you're not. It's the same thing with God. Now listen, two more things, okay? Two more slides, and I want you to hear me. I don't know what's going on in your life right now. I don't know what, if, if there's turbulence, if there's trouble, if there's confusion, if there's some kind of situation that's dragging you down. Listen, if there is, you might be the culprit. I can't tell you how many times in my life I was the reason that I went through hard times. So it could be a result of your poor choices or my poor choices. You could be going something through something horrible right now because of someone else's poor choices abuse or neglect or hurt or whatever. And that could be someone else doing that to you. Or God could be doing this thing to you. And instead of us acting like the Israelites and going, oh, God, why are you failing me right now? Why are you defeating me, God? Maybe it would be more beneficial for us to say, Lord, I know it was my fault. Forgive me of that. What are you trying to teach me in this? Lord, this person hurt me. I forgive them, but what are you trying to teach me? Lord, maybe it is your hand that is squeezing me right now. Why, Lord? What are you trying to teach me? If we would be humble in times of crisis, in times of, of, um, uh, times of tumultuousness, times of, of grief, times of whatever, if we would be humble and say, God, what do you want me to learn in this? God, what are you trying to tell me during this? If we would do that, and if we would keep our eyes and our ears open and listen to God, and if you feel like God's telling you something, the best way to make sure that it's from God is to check it with God's word. If we pray and read the word, here's the thing. God will never tell you anything that contradicts this book. Well, Corey, I was praying the other day and he told me to leave my wife for my secretary. No, he didn't. Let's break open the word of God because God is not going to contradict himself. He's just not gonna do it. That's why it's important to read that book. Well, I think God wants me to do that. Why do you think that, right? And let's see if the word of God confirms that. Now, here's the last thing. Do you think that maybe the things are going on right now in the United States, the freest, most prosperous, isn't it amazing when you give people prosperity and freedom and you remove God, what do we do with it? Man, we just wreck it, don't we? 
Do you think it's any coincidence that all the gods of, of, of American culture are starting to crumble right in front of you? Do you think it's any coincidence that, that we keep seeing entertainers fall flat? And do, do you think it's any coincidence that we keep seeing that Washington is not the answer? Is, is it amazing that we keep seeing that, that pornography is destructive and the pursuit of any kind of sexual endeavors is actually very, very destructive and all the, the, the pursuit of intoxication. You know, I remember for years, everyone's like, man, weed's gonna solve everything. You get on different medical websites and see the ramifications mentally and physically of smoking weed, things like, all these things that are happening and all these gods we've created and we're starting to see them crumble all the time around us. And don't you think that maybe God is breaking these idols down around us to hopefully get our attention towards him? Have we not seen, listen, have we not seen enough out of, out of Washington, D.C. to realize that that's not our hope? I'm not trying to get political with you. I am flabbergasted with how many Christians are more concerned with who's in the Oval Office than they are and who, who sits on the throne. I'm blown away by that. How much does it take for you to realize that government has never been the answer? How long does it take you to realize that economics are never the answer? That entertainment will never be the answer. Do you, do you know what it, let me give this last part. Here's where I get overtly concerned with a lot of you. And I'm just being very, very honest. Here's where I get very concerned because we're talking about all these trials and troubles and, and leaning on God when things are falling apart. But a lot of you sitting right there are going, life's pretty placid right now, actually. Live in a good neighborhood. I drive a nice car. Married, got a couple of kids, I go to good schools, got a good job, got money in the bank, everything's good. Do you know there's a reason why Jesus said it is harder for a rich man to get to heaven than it is to put a, a camel through the eye of a needle? Because when everything is placid and good and, and, and just flowing and easy, that's when people forget about the Lord. The majority of people who leave this church, it's not in times of trouble, it's in times of ease and comfort. And you wanna know the worst thing that's ever happened to the United States? It's been too easy for too long. And you are seeing it fall apart right now. Do you know what Jesus said when his disciples said, what will it be like when you come back? Now listen, it'll be a mess when Jesus comes back. But Jesus said he will come like a thief in the night, not because the, the believers in him won't feel him coming, we will. We will know the season that Christ comes back. But Christ said it will be like a thief in the night to people because they will be eating, drinking, partying, just like in the days of Noah. They're just gonna be doing their thing. They're gonna be making videos as they walk down the sidewalk, not a care in the world, no one exists except for them, having sex with whoever they wanna have sex with, watching whatever they wanna do, thinking whatever they wanna think, it's all about them. And then one day, It's like the husband whose wife finally walks out on him, right? I've used this analogy with you guys hundreds of times. And he comes into church. My wife just walked out, Corey. I need God. I need the church. I need you. Help me. We get him in a men's group. He starts going. He starts coming to church. He starts serving. His wife starts coming with him. I've seen this a hundred times. His wife starts coming with him. Their kids start coming. They're here every single week. Their marriage gets put back together. He gets a promotion at work. Everything's going great. And then I don't see them every week anymore. I see them about every other week. 
And then I see them about once a month. That's the average Christian in the United States goes to church once a month, 12 times a year. Anyways, so then I only see that person once a month and then I don't see that couple anymore because things are good. And the next time I see them, it's on Facebook and they've both gotten a divorce. Listen, even if things are smooth for you right now, if you claim to love God, I think it would be very, very beneficial for you when we get communion here in a second. To sit down for a second and say, Lord, if there is anything in my life that I have placed above you, show me and forgive me. If there is any idol that I have made, if I have put another God in the same location that you're supposed to be, God, show it to me and forgive me. And I'm gonna tell you why that's important because it is inevitable. It is inevitable. Any gods that we create will eventually fall and be broken. It is inevitable. Okay. Would you bow your heads with me, please? If you are in this room and maybe you do not have a relationship with Jesus and you have questions, up here on my right, your left, Pastor Jonathan is up here, works with our discipleship process. If you'd like to ask him any questions, he'd love to talk with you. We also have men and women on both sides of this room. If you need prayer for anything, you're welcome to come up here and get prayer for anything you need. The last thing is there is communion all the way around this room. And again, I'm gonna ask you, please be respectful. If you're not gonna take communion, that's fine. Just, just please walk out in the hallways, have your, your conversations out there. Just please be respectful for people taking communion. Communion represents the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Everyone is welcome to get that. You go back to your seat, take it by yourself or with a loved one. The only stipulation is you have to ask Jesus to forgive you of your sin before you take it, okay? Listen, as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I'm gonna say this, and I say this with all the sincerity in the world. I'm not trying to be rude to you or a jerk to you this morning. I'm not trying to hurt your feelings. I'm not trying to get under your skin, I promise. My, 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 my fear though, my fear though is, is sometimes we get so comfortable that we forget the importance of relying on God. And we've, we sometimes, listen, even if you're not sick, you need to go to your annual physical, right? Even if, you're, even if there's not anything there, you need to get that checkup every once in a while. And I think we need to do that with the Lord. God, search my heart. God, expose to me anything that has, has taken precedence over you. God, forgive me if I have let other things take precedence over you. Let me pray for us. Father God, we love you. Lord, I thank you so much for this church. God, I love, love, love the people in this room, God. And I know that you love the people in this room. Father, if we have let anything get between us and you, God, if we have let anything taken, take precedence over you, God, show it to us, forgive us, God. Lord, help us to ask, what are you teaching us in times of trouble? Just help us to be more reliant on you, Lord. We love you, Father. We thank you. Bless everyone in this room. Keep them safe. Keep us close to you, God. We pray all these things in your son's name, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all. You're welcome to help yourselves. Thank you so much.